I double-checked. It's still not snowing. I looked at the weather report, and I thought, oh, man, during the sermon it's going to snow because that's kind of a Christmassy tune, the jingle bells, and reminds me of what we're going to be celebrating. But uh, the music team did an excellent job in choosing uh, that song because you saw that branch growing out. We'll talk a, a little more about that. Let me get us into the lesson. Do you all have a, a good Thanksgiving? Raise your hand if you had a Thanksgiving that just stunk. Okay. All right. Good. I'm sure you got enough to eat because it's one of those holidays that if you don't get enough to eat, it's your own fault. My goodness, I had to push away from the table. Just I, It was enough. The other thing is, is that uh, it's kind of a typical holiday. It comes at just the right time. The respite's fantastic. You get to see family and friends. You get to relax a little bit. And hopefully you enjoyed it. I, I, hope, I hope it was a great Thanksgiving for you. But um, I hope what I say next doesn't diminish it in any way because we truly need to be thankful and grateful for everything that God has given us. But as you were celebrating, or maybe as you were driving home, did something seem just off a bit? And I don't know how your Thanksgivings go, um, but I know for a lot of people... There's something that just isn't quite right. And there's certain indicators, or maybe I think sometimes these holidays, we build them up in our heads, and we have these expectations that just don't measure up. Uh, maybe this happens to you. You know, you've got that one goofy uncle. He always says things he shouldn't say. It's an off-color joke or inappropriate conversation. And it's always loud enough for the kids at the kids' table to hear. And it's like, no, no. Maybe you've got a relative like that. You love them to death. You know, God bless them, but boy, I wish they would just shut up during the Thanksgiving meal. Or, or maybe it's a little more serious than that. Maybe for your celebration this year, there was an empty chair. Maybe you're so used to celebrating Thanksgiving with a full table of people that this year there was a spot that it, it, nobody could sit there. A loved one had died. And nobody dares sit there out of, out of respect for him or her um, because you wanted to honor the fact that they had been to been with you for so many Thanksgivings, but this was your first one without them. And, and let's be honest, you're grateful for everything God has given us. You just love the fact that God just cares for us so much. But do you feel it? Like I feel it deep down in your heart somewhere, something just isn't right. We were made for so much more. God created us for so much more than just this, even for all the thanks and praise that we give him for the material things that he's given us, do you stop to wonder what would it have been like giving thanks without sin? That's what God designed us for, and that's what God wants for us. In fact, God so loved this world that there is no way that he can stop loving you and me. See, Advent gives us the opportunity to reflect a little bit. We also prepare for the upcoming Christmas celebration. But it comes at just the right time of year where we can kind of get a perspective on this amazing love of God. The fact that he created us, he wants to drown us with his love. And so we start the church here. We start Advent with this lesson from Jeremiah. It's a unique prophet and a unique prophet's message. And he says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. 
All right, I'd like to give you the context, the background, so that you can understand why on earth is God having Jeremiah write and say these words. And it also affords me the opportunity to keep a promise I made to you when we were going through the Trinity season and the I Quit series. Back in October, I had actually shown you the first half of this video about Jeremiah to give you context because of that lesson. And I had said there would be a day in the future when I would show you the second half of that lesson. This is that day. It helps us to understand why Jeremiah writes what he writes. Now, if you weren't here or if you forgot what that first half was, you can always go to the website, go to that sermon, and you don't have to listen to the whole thing again, but just that one video where we're told about who Jeremiah was, when he lived, in his ministry. And let me try to describe for you, now that we're going to only pick up with the second half, what we've heard so far. Jeremiah was blessed to be one of the prophets of God, but he had a difficult challenge in front of him. And you see it the way the book of Jeremiah is written. There's a lot of hard stuff up front. There's a lot of hard stuff at back. Fortunately, we're right in the middle today, and we hear these messages of hope and promise. But more so, Jeremiah finally comes to that critical point in his ministry, and it left off telling us that he had preached what was known as his temple sermon. And basically, it's the introduction of a hard message God sent his prophet to speak to God's own people that judgment was coming. Because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion against God, the time had finally come for his fatherly discipline. And Jeremiah, both fortunately and unfortunately, was the prophet that God had chosen to speak these words. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement. The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem. And as you read on, you discover he's talking about the great empire of Babylon. And so this all leads up to a transition in chapter 25. Israel hasn't turned back to their God. And so in the first year of Babylon's new king, Nebuchadnezzar, God tells Jeremiah to announce that the Babylonian armies are headed for Israel and all of its neighbors to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years. He compares Babylon to a cup of wine filled to the brim with God's just anger at all of Israel's injustice and idolatry. And God will make Israel and the nations drink from this cup. Now, this chapter is key to the book's design because everything that follows is going to focus on Babylon's coming attack. First on Israel in chapters 26 to 45, and then on the other nations in chapters 46 to 51. The section about Israel first contains stories about how Jeremiah begged Israel to turn back, how he warned them right up to the last minute, but the leaders of Israel kept rejecting him. This section concludes with a large collection of stories about how Jerusalem was under siege and eventually destroyed by Babylon and about how Jeremiah was persecuted all through that time and eventually kidnapped and taken against his will to Egypt by a group of Israelite rebels. Now, right here in the middle, in between all of these dark stories of disaster and judgment, is a collection of Jeremiah's messages of hope for Israel's future. So he picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel had broken the covenant and gone into exile, see Deuteronomy 30, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them and transform their hearts. Jeremiah develops this promise, and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of the Torah, not on tablets, but rather on the hearts of his own people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow him fully. And so one day, Israel will return back to the land, and the Messiah from the line of David is going to come, and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as the true God. 
so these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. Rather, his own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises no matter what. After this, we find a large collection of poems about how God is going to use Babylon to judge the nations around Israel. So Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Edom, Ammon, Damascus, Hazor. But then, surprisingly, the longest poems are saved for last. And they're about God's coming judgment on Babylon itself. So although God used this nation to execute his justice, God doesn't endorse their violence and idolatry. And so Babylon, too, will come under the standard of God's justice. And so Jeremiah denounces this nation's pride and injustice as well. Now, Babylon is larger than life in these poems. And it reminds us of the image of Babylon all the way back from Genesis chapter 11. Babylon has become the archetypal rebellious nation. In their glorification of wealth and war, God's going to give this nation over to its own destruction. The book concludes with a story taken from the end of the book of Second Kings. It tells about Babylon's final attack on Jerusalem, how they destroyed the city walls and burned the temple and took the people into exile. The story shows how Jeremiah's warnings of judgment from chapters 1 through 24 were fulfilled. But then the chapter ends with a short story about the captive Israelite king Jehoiakim. He's heir to the line of David. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and shows him favor and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life. And that's how the book ends. So it's a little glimmer of hope. And this recalls Jeremiah's promises of hope from chapters 30 to 33. God hasn't abandoned his people or the promise of a future coming king from David's line. And so while this book contains a huge amount of warning and judgment, the final words conclude with a note of hope for the future. And that's what the book of Jeremiah is all about. Jeremiah is an amazing book, and I wish I had enough time to actually take us through the entire book. It's a summary of the history of the world. Uh, it's also a summary of the nation of Judah, it, it, but it's a summary on our lives too. I don't think I can pull it off because the Packers play at noon today, so let me just focus on these couple of verses because they are a message of hope. And really it's God's love coming to his people saying, let, let's try this again. Let's begin again. Now, how do we get there? You have to understand that while the beginning of the book and the end of the book do kind of go dark, it's this center section, these couple of chapters, where God is restating something to the nation of Judah that they'd heard a million times but needed to hear again. In fact, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. He's talking about promise of Messiah, but Jeremiah is crafting it in such a way by the work of the Holy Spirit that it really speaks to the nation of Judah. In fact, what Jeremiah is doing is he's speaking about a unique characteristic of God. And it tells us about one of the few things that God can't do. God cannot break his promises. Because of God's nature, who he is, he cannot go back on his word. Now, how does... Jeremiah highlights that. He actually uses three linguistic tools. One is the name that he chooses for the Lord, the one that we would say Yahweh or, or Jehovah. And I know we've talked about this before, but I don't know if we fully embrace and understand what this name means. It's a name that carries with it the fact that God makes a commitment to sinful mankind, and he keeps that commitment. But there's layers to this. He's got the heart to do it. God doesn't keep his promises just because that's what he's supposed to do. God keeps his promises because he loves 
to keep his promises. And he loves his children. And then with this name, the next layer is not only does he have the desire and the love to do these things, but he has the capability. He has the power. He is the only being capable of doing these things. To that point, then Jeremiah uses this verb, I will fulfill. I'm going to keep my promise. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the grammar, and it's not going to mean a lot to you other than the fact that the way in which Jeremiah writes it tells us how this amazing God can keep going back to the nation of Judah again and again, even though they spit in his face and rebel against him. How on earth does God have the wherewithal to go back and choose to love these people? It's the stem that he uses. It's a, a hyphiel. It means nothing except that in our language, it makes it a causative action. Meaning that God doesn't keep these promises and doesn't have the desire to keep these promises because of anything that Judah had done for him. God keeps these promises and is compelled to do so because of God's own nature. His love for his creation and for his children. And so when his children make him want to pull his hair out, and I've been a father long enough to be pushed to that very edge where my children, the last thing that I want to do is turn to them and go, oh, I love you. Somehow, amazingly, this God of ours sets aside what we have done to insult him. And he does turn to us and he says, I love you. And because of that, this is the cause of what I will do next. And this is an amazing way that Jeremiah puts it. In the original language, what he does is he doubles a word. Debar, debar. First it comes as a noun and then as a verb. And you think, big deal. A word got repeated. In the Hebrew language, this is about as emphatic as you can make this statement. I will accomplish the good accomplishment. Well, what's the good accomplishment? It goes all the way back to Father Abraham when he called him to the land of Canaan and he set up the covenant with this nation, the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Not only will this land become yours and not only will you have so many people uh, descendants that you can't count them, but one of those descendants will change this world. That's the good thing that God says, now I'm going to make that happen. It's important for us to understand that Jeremiah is speaking these words long before the Babylonians march down, surround Jerusalem, and besiege it and destroy the temple and carry the people off. Because this is a promise that is only acceptable by the gift of faith. Jeremiah himself had to witness these things coming to pass. In fact, next week's lesson is from his next book, Lamentations, the crying prophet's book, because he saw how the people rejected God's love. But even at this time, and even facing all of that, God starts to explain how this is going to take place. About a hundred years after Jeremiah speaks these words, at the end of the captivity, God actually intervenes in the world history events and takes the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Cyrus, king of the Persians. By now the Babylonians had fallen. Persians were in charge. And he moves this man to officially release the people of Judah. So anybody who wanted to go home could, which was necessary to have this people in that promised land in order to keep his promise. Now, not all of them went back, but many did. And what's amazing is the next thing Cyrus does, this godless king is compelled to protect 
the people of Judah and to officially not just send them back, but also provide them the resources, the money to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. God wanted these people to understand just how perfectly he was going to keep this promise. But here's the thing. This isn't really the promise. This is the small part. The people needed to be in the land for God to keep other prophecies, but this God wasn't even breaking a sweat with this. This is the promise. About 500 years earlier, King David, after he had gotten settled in Jerusalem, was living in his palace, he had it on his heart that he wanted to build a temple for God. Well, the prophet Nathan was sent to David saying, that's not your job. Your son, your physical son, will build a physical first temple. Solomon, of course. But he said, David, it's really not about that. I really don't need a building for me. What I need to do is love you again and again and again. So here's what I'm going to do. One of your descendants will come into this world and he's going to be a king. He's going to kind of be like you, but he's going to be nothing like you. This king will be unique and he will rule in ways that no person has ever seen. And he will rule a kingdom that nobody has ever ruled. What I'm going to do, David, is I'm going to make you a promise. And you don't know when I'll keep it. But I promise you will reign through your bloodline forever. Well, 500 years after Jeremiah says that, guess what? All of a sudden, these indicators, these clues of this descendant of David start coming true. Because one of the characteristics is he will do what is just and right. Let me put that in modern day English. He's going to be perfect. Can you imagine living in a kingdom with a king who did absolutely everything right? Can you imagine what a blessed life? the protection, security, and safety that you would feel knowing that the one in charge of what's most important to you is doing the best job anyone has ever done. In fact, he's doing it perfectly. And it's not just a king to rule over your house, though he does that, or your daily life, though he does that, but this king stakes out his domain in your heart. And he rules it, not out of fear or law, but out of love and hope, and promise. Jeremiah says, watch for a king like that. And just in case you missed those clues, there's a couple other things you should know about this king. Let me tell you his names. They're unique. One wasn't so much. In fact, the word that we get the word saved from, or safety in Hebrew, that's Yasha. The name was pretty common to Hebrews, Yeshua, Joshua. But here's what you need to know. You see, eventually the Babylonians gave way to the Persians. The Persians gave way to the Greeks. The Greeks gave way to the Romans who were ruling at the time of the fulfillment, but yet what was in place was a language, the Greek language, that was as universal at that time as English is today. And the way you say that name in that language is Jesus. Watch for a king with the name Jesus. And if you still prefer the mother tongue of Hebrew, let me give you a much more accurate name than the one you've been thinking. It's Jehovah Zidkanu, which means the Lord, Jehovah, our righteousness. And again, names can get lost, but this is what God's saying. This king means the covenant God makes you right. 
makes you right with him, makes you right with each other. Takes what seems broken and off and finally makes it right the way it was designed to be. This king, I promise you, will take you back to what your life was supposed to be so that we can begin again. Now, I don't know if any of you have been paying that close of attention to go, you know, Pastor Krause, we got a problem here because, and the video kind of ended that way, that the last Davidic king to ever rule in Jerusalem and Judah was Jehoiakim. After him, no descendant of David ever sat on the throne because during those kingdoms that I just listed, it was governors or appointed rulers, but never again did one of David's children sit in Jerusalem and rule. So how on earth could God possibly keep this promise of hope? How could God get things restarted? Because after all, Judah had taken the covenant, a marriage with God, and had thrown it away with her adultery, with her rebellion. How on earth could God keep this promise if he couldn't take care of this one little thing? Because the king that he's promising wasn't meant to just rule here. God's promise isn't that small. God says, I want you to think bigger. And so with each of the genealogies in the Gospels, and Luke actually goes all the way back to Adam, we find that it culminates in one descendant of David who came here and was absolutely perfect. And wouldn't you know it, his name was Jesus, the one who makes us right with God the one who makes it possible for holy God to come to his sinful children and simply say, let's begin again. Now, I know you're all smart enough to know where this ends. It happens every Advent season. Uh, you know, we have four weeks, and sometimes we start to think of it as the filler. When's Christmas going to get here? But this is a season of preparation. And the older I get, the more I realize how much preparation I need to actually get my mind and heart right to celebrate God becoming human. There's something else, though, and it's taken me a lot of years to figure this out. Why the church fathers saw fit to start the church year one month before the calendar year. And to me, it always seemed illogical and like, well, why didn't they just match those up? And now I kind of get it. And it has to do with this part of the year that we go through. And let me start with Thanksgiving and the fact that I said, I don't, maybe you all had a, just a, a blowout of a Thanksgiving, and if you did, God bless you. But I have a feeling many of us did sense something that wasn't quite right. Just a, a little bit off. And again, for as thankful as we are for everything God has given us, and let's be honest, he's blessed us beyond measure, not just in material ways, but spiritually, still something's not right. Deep down inside, we know we were created for more, more than this. Because God loves us that much. We were created to live in paradise but more so to live in a perfect relationship with God. And we don't have that right now, at least not here in this life. And so you sense God created us for more. And this amazing loving God wants us to have more. But what happens? Tomorrow you go back to work. Back to your ordinary life, back to your routines, back to your schedules. And how quickly do we fall out of that mindset of being grateful and being thankful. The same thing happens as we prepare to celebrate the birth of God becoming man. Because after it all gets put away, we end up with a lot of this. 
I don't know if you go through these same things the way I do, but every Christmas I hope to do it better. Not just as a pastor preaching, but as a child of God celebrating this amazing love. Every year I hope I focus more on what it's supposed to be about. And I don't get caught up in all of the other things that oftentimes grab my attention. And then, as soon as we finish with Christmas, it's amazing. Very shortly after is the new year, and it's like a second advent. We get another chance to start again. And I already know what's going to happen. I want to do better next year. God, I want to love you more because you love me so much. And you know what? Then you go back to that routine and that schedule and that part of your life. Look where we're at now. Another advent. Needing to prepare for something that should be on our hearts and minds every day. And sadly, it's not. The reason these words to Judah are so important for us is because these are Jeremiah's words to us. How many times have we failed God and that becomes the focus of our life and we beat ourselves up and we're filled with shame when that's not at all what God wants for us? He didn't create us for that. How many times have we fallen along the way and what we end up focusing on is how we have failed God? It's just like it's been from the beginning when the devil came and tempted our parents and once he got them into that corner, he tried to convince them that they were the problem when all the time it was him. He is the problem. Here's what you need to know. Here's what we're preparing for. This is the very first promise that God made to man. This was the very first promise Scripture records of holy God speaking to sinful children. And notice that it comes after they fall. He doesn't come to them when they're perfect and say, hey, these are some of the things I want to do for you, this, that, I promise I'll do this. It's not until they actually fail that God comes to them with this amazing promise and says, well, let's begin again. This is not what I created you for. This is not what I want for my children. So let's begin again. And each Advent season, every Christmas celebration, we get the opportunity to do that spiritually, maybe emotionally and physically as well, but we get a chance to start over and hear the amazing promise of God and how it's dependent on what He says not what we promise Him. In fact, it's only this promise that can take what's so wrong and make it right. This promise fills the empty chair at your Thanksgiving table because this promise conquers death. No other promise can do that. This promise fills the hole in our hearts, that sense of what is missing, what is off, because this is Holy God saying to us, I love you this much. I love you this much, I can't stop loving you. So stop fighting against me. Just embrace it. Enjoy it. And get ready to celebrate it. Because for as many times as we have fallen, for as many times as we have failed, there is God right there, and He's always been this way, telling us, let's begin. Let's start over. Let's, let's try this again. And for as many times as we've got it wrong, this promise makes it right. The Lord who makes things right. He's the one that answers all of those questions. He's the one that fills that void. He's the one that gives us the real cause of our celebrations and a reason to be thankful and look forward to all of the other holidays. Because as we slip back into the routines and schedules, there is one unique difference. We celebrate a God who makes promises that He cannot break.
And it's this promise that desperately helps us to understand what it means and says those words that we want to hear from our God. Let's begin again. Brokenness is a universal human condition. We all have first-hand knowledge of our brokenness and can see the effects of it all around us. The question before us is, not are we broken, but what will become of our brokenness? Most of us would agree that we're ashamed of the messy parts of our lives. We work really hard to hide those spaces. What if there was another way? What if there was beauty to be found in those jagged places? God is not ashamed of our brokenness, and he doesn't want us to be ashamed of it either. More importantly, God is the number one recycler of our disappointments, our shame, and our failures. He is the master at creating beauty from the most broken, messed up parts of our lives.